HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Must be Tuesday, 3 p.m., because you're listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Like to, at the top of the show, thank our sponsor, Hearst Ranch. It's the nation's largest single source supplier of free range, all natural, grass fed, and finished beef. Since 1865, Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of Central California coast. The result? beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more info, go to www.hearseranch.com. My guests today, Catherine Kramer of uh, callmecat.com and Zach Denfield of uh, genomicgastronomy.com. Hello, hello. hello. <laughs> um, we're steaming in this little stevedore uh, shipping container of a studio behind Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, but uh, we're going to have a good talk. We're going to have a good discussion. Actually, met Catherine on a rooftop in Brooklyn at a friend's birthday party recently and uh, was told that we had to meet because uh, they had gone to the Royal um, College of Art in London together. And Kat was working on uh, kind of interactions, uh, design interactions, um, but more so food-related design interactions. And the one that kind of caught my ear, as it were, uh, was a cloud project where she was modifying an ice cream van um, in an experiment to make clouds snow ice cream. And I'm just going to let her go because I mean it's absolutely <laughs> fascinating and uh, uh, salivating uh, at the same time. So do tell what the impetus or idea behind uh, this project was. Uh, right. So it started with an interest in... Um Actually, bizarrely, in nanotechnology, which was uh, from that, it was a friend of mine and I, uh, Zoe Papadopoulou, and we thought, uh, how will nanotechnology influence our future, and what what sort of interventions will we see? And um, and then we were looking at uh, kind of domestic uses for nan, or like where it's already been implemented within a domestic setting, or 
and uh, came across the opposite end of the scale, which is geoengineering. So basically trying to manipulate the entire Earth's climate to <laughs> stop global warming. Yeah, it's just a small task. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so nanotechnology on the opposite end of the scale is basically... Uh, to the power of minus nine so very very tiny you can't see it yeah. so how do you maybe experience that and uh, we came across a technique which that demonstrated the nano scale which was uh, so called nano ice cream which is freezing um, an ice cream base with liquid nitrogen and the point is the ice crystals uh, don't get a chance to grow beyond the nano scale so it results in a s very smooth uh, fluffy texture, but also um, maybe helps you experience the nanoscale through taste and you know other sensory yeah. uh, experience of, of the nanoscale. So that's where it started. And then, yeah, with the geoengineering aspect, we thought, oh, well, what if we can uh, make cloud snow ice cream? Because there's already a number of quite bizarre and preposterous proposals which are very uh, <laughs> you know very serious and, and yeah. um, put forward by serious scientists yeah but I mean so it's based on an idea and like I mean as early as I think the 1920s uh, to 1940s cloud yeah. seeding where they'd shoot you know silver iodide and dry ice pretty much uh, yeah. hoping to make it rain precisely and, and, and I mean weather modification has been sort of you know one of man's desires since yeah. since, since yeah, we, yeah, since before anything. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. the beginning of time. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, rain dances and, yeah. and whatever. So, um, yeah, so so we, I guess, are the the newest iteration of of um, that type of work. Yeah, and the website for that project specifically is thecloudproject.co.uk? Yes, yes. Okay, just uh, wanted to throw yes. it out there for all you guys to check out. Yes. Um, <laughs> Zach, on the other hand, I think works sometimes on a bigger, broader scale. Not to say that, you know, geo versus <laughs> nano <laughs> isn't, isn't, you know, a, a gamut, but wh what's interesting about Zach's uh, uh, work is the Brinjal Four-Way, uh, which was a kind of collaborative uh, among students in India to have this cooking competition where they'd source Brinjal, uh, more commonly known as eggplants. As eggplant, yeah. Actually, there's a variety of names uh, in, in India used, used uh, local names. Um, and um, yeah, so I was, t I was teaching at uh, a school called Shristi School of Art and Design in India where I teach half the year. And um, when I got there this last time, there was this big debate happening uh, over whether India wanted to allow... Uh, Monsanto's new crop, uh, which was a, a, a BT uh, eggplant, into the country. Yeah, and it was, it was pretty contentious. And so, um, the students wanted to look at it. I wanted to look at it. And so, what we realized was that one of the big concerns around accepting this G GM technology is it might um, uh, adversely affect the uh, agricultural biodiversity. And then it turns out that um, me and my students had no idea what the agricultural biodiversity was like. <laughs> yeah. So we just like the first thing we're like, okay, we'll just let's just go to the markets and see what's there. Yeah. And um, I couldn't even tell you that half the stuff was eggplants because there's long, thin white ones, long green ones. There's these little ones that have like spikes all over the spine. Ooh, yeah. So just like in two hours of visiting different markets in Bangalore, we found eight eight varieties. Yeah. And so it was sort of a celebration of the, you know, current um, agricultural biodiversity and what's available. And then it was also about trying to sort of um, 
re- reclaim some of the uh, recipes from their youth they remembered from their grandparents making. Yeah. And and so as as their like mothers have entered the workforce, they're not cooking at home as much, and there's maybe a discontinuity with these recipes. Um, but just to make sure it wasn't too conservative, we also wanted to look at sort of innovation. So one of the groups made. Um, candied uh, brinjal which was sort of like eggplants with like lemon and caramel on the outside yeah. so like you know what else you know it's about conservation and innovation yeah um, and so yeah we had this there's this great alternative space in Bangalore downtown and we had this huge cooking contest uh, 16 different teams came out with recipes um, you know we had three winners yeah and I just saw a little uh, Vimeo video recently uh-huh. of that you know uh, compilation but what, what what's also very interesting is the idea of you not knowing what's in those markets, uh, what is actually, you know, indigenous of the area, mm-hmm. and then deciding that that's not enough, that Monsanto said, well, we have to bring in these, you know, GMOs in a sense, because there's not enough native variety. Or do they even have that in consideration? Uh, who, who, who? Monsanto. Uh, you know, I, th- I think they were basically looking at, uh, we want to enter this market, because so far India hasn't accepted any edible GMOs. They've accepted um, cotton. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I mean, Monsanto, as far as I can tell, is a basic cost-benefit. What's the one crop that's um, sold all over the country? And eggplant is one thing that every different ethnic and religious and local community has recipes for. And so I think that was their consideration. Um and, and I think it actually really backfired in terms of their hopes for, for entering that market because it caused such uh, anger in so many different uh, communities. Yeah. Whereas if they had picked like a smaller plant, and I always give the example of bitter gourd, which a lot of people don't like the taste of, <laughs> yeah. they, may, they may have had found more success in entering the market. Um, but yeah, that's something I'm trying to find more about. I mean, part of it is a lot of the companies entering the space don't exactly promote the debate that much because it's not to their advantage. Yeah. And a lot of the debate happens in languages other than English, which we, my students may or may not have access to. So Hindi or local Kannada. Um, so so it's, a, it's a pretty complicated debate to begin with and then to have to deal with all these different languages. Yeah. You know, it becomes, it becomes quite a thing to get into. So that's why we thought, okay, well, just doing this cooking thing and finding these recipes and the varieties, it's a way in for us. And we get to taste it and touch it and talk to farmers and talk to vendors. And yeah. that, that was our way in. So I think we're you know, continuing to look at uh, where this can go. Because it's not off the table. The, the government temporarily put a moratorium on it, but they're going to reconsider it after more testing is done. So, yeah. it's, you know, it's there. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting corollary to, to uh, another project that you're working on, the Vegetarian Bouillabaisse, um, which was taking the kind of... Well, you can explain it better, but the combination of a uh, tomato uh, with a fish gene to be able to create not just a fish tomato, but this super tomato that would be able to, uh, you know, stay on shelves, last longer, taste better, be brighter. and Right. Um, so, well, this company, uh, DNA Plant Technology, actually tried to make, uh, make this in the early 90s. And so it's sort of, that was one of the vegetables... You know, I was a kid, so I don't remember this, but that was one of the products that got a lot of uh, consumers very anxious in America. Um, and you know, one of the concerns was, oh, if you take this fish gene uh, from the what, Arctic uh, flounder and you and you put it in a tomato, will I get sick if I have a seafood allergy? Yeah, <laughs> uh, and which shows some misunderstanding of the science because it, you know, it's a it's a. A small insertion of a transgene which doesn't code for the protein that people are allergic to. But, you know, on the other hand, there are a lot of concerns about, like, let's say intellectual property. What does it mean that this company owns this new product and you have to, you know, sort of use their um, intellectual property agreement? And, And so the idea was that it has this gene from this fish, which is frost tolerant. So if this plant worked well, you could put it in the ground, let's say, in March. And if a frost came early in New England, it would survive that. 
Um, and you know when when you wouldn't lose all your plants. Yeah, and I'm sure the vegetarian debate came out too. Exa- exactly. And it was actually it was really funny because I was doing this research in India, and there's a great article by a Buddhist who was like, "Well, as a Buddhist, I don't really have any problem with this." Yeah. So that, that was that was pretty interesting. So I'm definitely going to invite um, Buddhists to come to my vegetarian buya based dinner oh, when yeah. it happens. You know. Which you can serve with. Um the community meat labs, uh, <laughs> victimless meat. Cat uh, has been working on this idea that explores how emerging food-related technologies could be applied outside of the industrial food system, namely in vitro meats uh, that are, well, not meatless, but victimless. Uh, could you explain a little bit more about that? Um, well, that project uh, started by looking at um, in vitro meat as a sort of like it's claimed that that's going to be a way of solving the the you know problems with the meat industry as as is today because yeah. it's there's all like a number of reasons why it's problematic <laughs> um but uh there's not really very many ways to, ways to deal with that if you're a meat eater so and you know there's sort of statistics that are, that are saying that um the global consumption of meat is increasing instead of decreasing. So how do we then deal with that? And then one of the uh, ways that that people are thinking about it is, for example, to grow meat in a lab as opposed to... So you'd only grow the cells that you'd need, for example, you know, a, a steak or something. There's, there's a lot of... Within that technology, there's still a lot of problems that's still in uh, uh, sort of early stages. But I thought then they've... You know, they've already successfully grown, you know, very small uh, globs of jelly. Globs yeah. of jelly, <laughs> basically. Yeah. That sounds so I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of yeah problems with it. <laughs> but for example, how do you exercise these cells? Which is also an interesting question. Like, and um, but yeah. So I thought, well, if since it's so early on in the in this process of of development, maybe it's an interesting point uh, which. Um, we can consider alternative ways for it to enter uh, our food system or the the, the market. Um, and is there room for science in our domestic setting or in, or in our, you know, with with all the kind of community-based food um, networks that we're seeing pop up, like uh, grow at home, grow local, uh, sustainable, yeah, yeah all sustainable, those all these words. wonderful, exactly. <laughs> How like can you can you uh, introduce scientific kind of techniques into yeah. this realm? So I mean, the, the odd thing though is, how do you introduce that to a food chart, a food system? And Zach had worked on a food chart specifically, uh, which shows how food is represented in government databases. And is there a place for? Uh, I mean, I hate to call them GMOs, hmm. uh, but in a sense, they are. I mean. Or do you find them to be some other kind of term or, uh, you know, uh, acronym? Well, this is a conversation that we've been having, which uh, Zach's been saying, like, oh, we've been biohackers. We've always been biohackers. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't want to overstate the case because I think there's a lot of problems with the technology, not so much from the level of, of molecular or genetic, but from the way that it's researched, the funding, the intellectual property regimes. And those are hugely problematic. Mm-hmm. In terms of the tech itself, this, it's, a, it's a technique, you know, I, and this is the case I've been trying to make to all of my peers. Like, transgenic organisms are just like permaculture, and they're just like phytoremediation, and there's good and bad things with those technologies. Um, 
So I, not to discount that it may be a, a, a somewhat of a discontinuity, but it, in some ways it's just another type of biotechnology like seed saving. Um, and so if you start to approach it that way, I think you can be more critical and thoughtful with your engagement with industry. Because mm-hmm. part of my challenge has been as an artist, you know, when I engage with scientists and I say, oh, well, my friends are very concerned about GMOs and playing God and are they going to get sick with the seafood allergy? their ears basically shut off. Yeah. You know, they don't want to talk to you anymore because they're like, well, they don't understand the molecular biology. But once, you know, I, I come and I've done my homework and I've spent some time in a molecular biology lab and I said, I understand this technology. Uh, here are my concerns. And they're largely about uh, eco-regional, you know, consolidation of food chains, intellectual property, some unproven po- possible side effects on humans, but particularly the way they affect, um, you know, ecosystems mm-hmm. then they're like oh well cool we'll talk to you um but yeah i i think there's a room for uh for biotech of all different types and what i'm trying to really push is to say that this control of biotech needs to be in the hands of local communities and that is a, a conversation i haven't seen happen yet so what is it to happen instead of um um let's say monsanto or cargill having a product that they own and sell rights to use mm-hmm. What if it's a community that has a local cultivar? So, for example, in South India, they have a very particular kind of eggplant that they use. Yeah. Now, a blight's coming. It's going to wipe it out. My my sort of uh, idea is that they could send it to the um, state-run hack lab. The state could send it back with um, a genetically modified version. And you would definitely know it was theirs because it's their cultivar. It yeah. looks different. It's phenotypically different. Um, it, there are obviously still concerns about... Uh, horizontal tree, uh, you know, gene, gene transfer and all those things. But at least that way, you're retaining the genetic uh, diversity mm. and all of the work that those, uh, I, I know I, I'd call them biohackers, have done for a thousand years to get to this cultivar. So, you know, I'm trying to explore this possibility, but then it's about <laughs> who do you talk to? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's, been the, that's been the last few months is finding you know, yeah. people. So, so we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back uh, talking about whether it's better to sustain local ecology or um, make mass efficiency. Uh, You've been listening to The Food Scene. This is Michael Harlan Turkel.
Hey, this is Michael Harlan Turkel. You're listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. Guest today, Kat Kramer, Zach Denfeld. We were just talking about the idea of local ecology versus mash efficiency. Um, and what came up, I had recently been reading some articles about eliminating processes, uh, um, making things more efficient. Um, you have a recipe. It says skin a carrot. Why not have skinless carrots? Why not, before you know, putting it through a machine, have the product ready? Um, so whether or not to apply technology to the base or apply technology to the mode, um, is that an interesting debate that comes up within you know, trying to create these nouveau GMOs which aren't you know, uh, bad for you but actually good for the greater society? I'm not so sure because yeah. I think that's just encouraging laziness. And... <laughs> uh, you know, I think that, that GMOs or these technologies should be considered when, when okay, this is also <laughs> contestational, but, but, but when they can be of some sort of benef- benefit to someone, whether that's, uh, you know, a frivolous benefit or not. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, for example, pre-peeled carrots, which um, I kind of find it horrifying. All the packaged foods you get in the supermarket here—it's—it's it's like pre-sliced, pre-everything. Oh yeah, and it's—we should say she's from Norway. Yeah. So <laughs> just to, if you're wondering, but the uh, you get it in Norway too now. I mean, you know, your your biggest yeah. export is your cultural. Um, uh, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's 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 problematic it's a sh- it's a it's a mind shift and yeah. instead of saying oh we should improve the technologies and have skinless carrots we should be saying well actually no get a peeler and peel your carrots and I, I mean i i want to temper that too i mean i would generally agree except that you know i'm seeing like spending time in india this transition from you know sort of this pre-industrial economy to this highly industrialized economy where women are entering the workforce they want to uh, feed their children well they don't have a lot of time um, and I want to be realistic about sort of both citizens and consumers make that distinction choices uh, so I do understand the need for time saving if you don't have a multi-generational household like you used to and all of a sudden you still want to feed, feed your kids um, you know I think there's some need for that uh, if, 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 if that's the decision the family's making that, you know, that but it's, work. it's a larger food culture debate as yeah. well then because it's um, the more these efficiency uh, the more efficiently you can buy uh, your meals such as TV dinners whatever whatever it cuts out this um, sort of cultural yeah. relationship we have to food which is very important in having a healthy it, it, at, at the end of the day for me like so many of the things in biology and, 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 and agriculture I'm finding have nothing to do with biology or agriculture and have to do with capital yeah <laughs> and, 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 and you know the industrial mindset and uh, you know industrial food systems um, and I mean I think that's what we're seeing in this country is that there's this there's this need for uh, connection to foods, whether it be through the mediation of the farmer or the butcher. You want those social connections with your food. And so I no, for me, no addition of processing offsite where you don't see it does that. And so there's a reverse market in the U.S. where people want to actually peel their own carrots and want yeah. to talk to their butcher and don't mind spending an hour. But that means that we need a... So if, there should be a know. choice. Well, there should be a choice, but that also the, the economy affords that kind of... Um, uh, time for food prep and spending uh, money on quality foods, and we just have spent the last you know sixty years dismantling that. Yeah, yeah. So it's a you know it's a long it's a long road, but yeah, I I think for me the major part of my project with genomic astronomy is to say we've spent 
50 years using efficiency as the main driver and selection mechanism of the food system, that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. What are the other things we need to take into consideration? You know, uh, e- ecosystem health. Um, do do non-humans like your garden or your or, or your farm? If bumblebees aren't coming to your farm or you know honeybees, you know if if the rabbits don't like it, then. Yeah, I, yeah, there's been this shift in paradigms from product to byproduct. Mm. You know, like secondary, tertiary um, things that happened, and it, it is a cause and effect that I think it, it got to a point where it's kind of like following a recipe. There is a start, there is an end, but reeling, uh, realizing that it's more cyclical than mm. that, uh, which leads me to want to talk about Cat's uh, urban grazing <laughs> project, um, which does speak of waste in in a very interesting way. And by lessons, lessening it, uh, she was disposing of food. Uh, by presenting the access to the public in a very intriguing way. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it, so just to explain briefly, it was a very quick experiment uh, to see how I could personally deal with uh, excess food because I was living alone at the time and all that the supermarket would offer, uh, well, not all, but but a lot of the time it was, you know, bagged, Ten like mandarins or or you know grouped items, and I'd never get through them all by the time they'd go bad. So I decided to hang excess food that still tasted good out of my window for <laughs> passersby to, to sort of how high up was this collect. Uh, second story. Ah. So so there was just this dangling box. Yeah, there was a dangling box creating a little sort of spectacle for bypassers, which. They seemed to enjoy. I was also secretly monitoring them. <laughs> um, <laughs> a bit of a little Big Brother thing, um, but yeah. So I kind of did that to see if if there is room for um, people to you know to kind of uh, yeah deal with with the sort of waste aspects of their of their consumption, but but personally instead of you know relying on on. Uh, Massive changes for what, this to happen. Did you did you get stuff back in the box? Like were there <laughs> gifts and notes and? There was no gift. There was a note. Uh, actually, no, there wasn't a note. But I made a website for it, which is terrible. But I made a website for it, and there was somebody went and wrote a note on the website saying thanks for the, <laughs> for the. I can't remember what he had. But so uh, like I did it for. I only did it for a week. So it's a very very short uh, test, and. The first day, I you know lured them in with with easy to digest things. So like how you said the word mandarin. lure them in rather than just saying let them in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I had chocolate biscuits yeah. and I had um, yeah oranges and tangerines, I think. And then the you know and then I was like, okay, I'm not going to waste my money buying <laughs> yeah. stuff to get people to take this. <laughs> uh, so then I I you know had some old onions which were about to go off and I put a lemon in there and sort of things that you can't instantly uh, eat or I wouldn't yeah and so oh I mean I had an onion and lemon for lunch today yeah I'm bit right into them both yeah you might have some issues yeah in the bathroom. <laughs> that's why I'm on the radio and not interacting with people <laughs> um, but yeah so and they were taken as well by the end of the day so and I just sort of let it hang there and do its own thing so I think you know as an individual it's not that interesting but if you scaled it up and it became sort of an informal system across an entire uh, 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 what's it called city or you know urban environment somehow, then it could, um, yeah, potentially. 
I guess that's where the hope for a lot of these projects for me are, is seeing these sort of peer production networks in action. Mm. And, you know, it's not utopian. It's sort of saying, like, okay, there's these people with these different interests. They're connected, let's say, perhaps through IT, cell phones, web, whatever. Um, there's also the sort of material aspect, this, this basket hanging out of the thing. But then they can maybe agree upon their own specs. So you don't need the FDA to come in and approve your dumpster di- you yeah. Know, yeah. <laughs> your dived uh, bagels or whatever. Um, but there may be some informal um, mechanism for how people decide how rotten is too rotten. Yeah. Because yeah. um, that, right, I mean, that's, that's a lot of things we're contending with. Like, you know, if you can't butcher your own meat because, you know, you have to have this inspector come in, like, ha- uh, but you want to be, like, above ground. You don't want to be below ground doing it. Yeah. What are the sort of informal self-policing mechanisms? Um, yeah. Like, you know, there's some, there's some hope there. So it's more of, like, a repurposing. So mm-hmm. it's uh, saying, well, I can't do this, um, but I can distribute it to this person and... Um, mm. I mean, there is hope. There but is but hope. scaling horizontally rather than vertically, right? So it's not like industrial. Yeah. Like, you know, you could take all of the like, waste food and, and put it into, like, I don't know, like a burner and burn it for energy or something. Yeah. Make that, like, a municipal service. But this is more like all these little nodes where people informally agree to, like, maybe I have a rotten cheese, but I need rotten onions. Or yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, like, are there any share sites like that? I mean, is there a website that people say, well, I have these about to turn, and uh, if anyone needs them, contact me and no trade necessary know, like but a food version of free cycle <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> I, yeah I mean I think uh, uh, probably the problem with a lot of these networks is so far the scale of networks right so to make that viable you probably yeah. like a certain number of people but um, I, I don't I don't know on the top of my head but it would be a great for someone out there to make Somebody make that. <laughs> if it is in the Pacific Northwest, I will join. Yeah. <laughs> are there future projects that you guys are working on right now that you'd like to share? Uh, my big project right now that I'm trying to wrap up is uh, called Glowing Sushi, and it'll be up at glowingsushi.com. Um, and basically, uh, I created a recipe a few months ago called the Not in California Roll, which is basically <laughs> a California roll replacing the fake crab meat um, with um, the glow-in-the-dark fish that you buy at the pet store. Why don't they ever call it fake crab meat? Real Pollock. <laughs> or real haddock. You know what it actually is. <laughs> Crab with a kid. Yeah. Um, so it's called Nine California Roll because you can buy these glow in the dark pet fish every, everywhere in the U.S. except for uh, California. Um, and uh, <laughs> they're, they're, the, the company uh, that sells them in the U.S., uh, Yorktown Technologies, uh, originally made them a- as a pet, but you know the street's always going to do its own thing with technology. And I thought, oh, these would be great to eat because they're colorful, and um, you know they would glow. Um, so I've been sort of trying to develop these different recipes with them. Um, GF pizza is another one. Some some GFP uh, glow in the dark fish. Um, so it also it, I didn't I didn't feel comfortable about serving it to people at first because I didn't you know really have the research. But there's actually a lot of great documents the company provided. Um, where they did like literature reviews saying you know GFP uh, breaks down in the gut of rats. So if a little kid took one of these out of a fish tank and ate it, it'd probably be okay. Yeah. Um, so now I feel okay. I'm serving it. So if you want it, um, let's see. I'll hopefully do some servings too. And so I'm I'm, sh- I'm shooting some episodes of a cooking show that has these different recipes. Um, and what I'm trying to get at is um, that you know all these transgenic uh, organisms are coming to the market, and the next year we're probably going to have transgenic uh, salmon finally hitting the market after yeah. ten years of. Uh, and so, you know, how do people feel about that? Um, and then also sort of the pet versus food debate. <laughs> um, and then what's really insane to me about this company's product is that you it says it's illegal to breed them. But if you put them in a fish tank together, they will breed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that becomes really interesting. And um, 
so I've I've noticed online there's a lot of uh, just home breeders that are cross uh, crossing these with other other types of zebra danios, and so there's this sort of whole community of biohackers. That don't yeah, know biohackers. I yet. love knowing about this underbelly of biohackers <laughs> breeding glowing fish for sushi right now. <laughs> so uh, that's my main thing. Yeah, um, I suppose. Yeah, I've my own projects have been put on hold for a little while because the reason I'm in New York is to help Natalie Jeremajenko, who was just on earlier, um, out with some of her projects during the summer. So uh, I'm currently working on the Cross Species uh, Adventure Club dinner party, which is yeah. coming up on the 21st, and uh, also um, helping her with a show that she's curating in DC at the Australian Consulate and various other things. But so. what we really want to know is when is the ice cream cloud truck coming to Brooklyn? <laughs> when someone pays for yeah. it to be shipped. Hey, <laughs> ask, ask for assistance here because I'm sure plenty of people would be willing to uh, open their wallets and or their mouths. Can you uh, can you like open source the plan so someone else could do it for you? Just like here, the plans go for it. Just put my name on it. Creative yeah, Commons. Yeah, that's that's fine. You know, it's it's a fun project. To, I mean, a lot. A large portion of the the project was also refurbishing the van, and uh, the main aim of the project was also to uh, have a space which sort of can travel around and sit outside of institutions where you can talk about, um, you know, various emerging technologies and also food and and um, yeah, weather modification, whatever, whatever that we've had like. A number of different scientists, artists, designers come and speak in the van, and I think that's actually the main element of of the project is, um, yeah, small discussions and informal uh, distribution of knowledge. Yeah, if you'd like to extend these small discussions uh, with Kat or Zach, uh, feel free to contact them. Call me Kat or genomicastronomy.com. Just want to thank you both for being on the show. Thank You've you. been uh, listening you. to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, your host. Every Tuesday at 3, thanks again to Hearst Ranch for sponsoring, to Jack Inslee for producing, Nat Wiener for uh, engineering, and Roberta's for hosting. See you next Tuesday at 3.